Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Laura Brown, who's the author of Amateur Hour, Presidential Character and the Question of Leadership. This was published in 2020 by Rutledge Press, and it is a really fascinating investigation of our understanding of the role of character and how this particular understanding works with our concept of the presidency. And Laura does a deep dive into the history of the presidency in the United States, but I'm going to let her talk to us about that. First, I'd like to welcome Laura Brown to the podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this awesome project. Hi, Laura. Hi, Lily. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's really great to have a chance to talk about this project. Um, Some of how I came to this has to do with a lifelong interest in both the relationship of character and agency within all of our institutional structures. So that's kind of a big statement, but let me try to unpack some of that. Um, The truth is, I am a political scientist who believes that institutions and structure matter, that incentives are important. But I am also something of a political historian in that I believe that people matter inside of politics and that you cannot sort of separate the interaction of people, in particular elite politicians, um, from the institutions themselves. So I don't really think that our institutions operate without kind of good leadership or thoughtful, ethical character kind of moving things forward. And this is really about, I would say, a place where I come at politics and political science from kind of the vantage point of the framers. I do tend to think um, kind of philosophically in the way that our framers did about human nature and how people behave. But then I also tend to um, view our institutions as being these very strong bureaucratic structures, but uh, structures that really people who are politically savvy or smart um, operatives can move or bend to their will. And and you sort of start with Washington. I mean, you you actually start with the the Constitutional Convention, um, and what some of the thinking was at the time in 1787, with regard to structuring an office like the presidency, um, and what the framers hoped and anticipated with regard to how and who would sort of come to that office and what they would be like. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you found in that research? Because we are having many conversations these days with many books and articles about the presidency itself and those who have occupied it over the last 200 years. Well, that's right. I mean, my last book, Jockeying for the American Presidency, took a look at who are the people who run for office. I was a little bit frustrated with um, sort of the the presidential histories that are so focused on how different all of our presidents are 
that I wrote that book trying to remind people that, wait a minute, if you think about politicians in terms of progressive ambition, and you think about the presidency as being the pinnacle of our political system in the United States, then you have to understand that all of the people who have won the presidency, who have actually run and won, not just those who accidentally arrived there um, through death or resignation, but those who actually ran were likely to be more similar. In other words, they all kind of reside on one end of a spectrum as opposed to those other politicians who either didn't make it there or never chose to run. So when I did that investigation, what I found is that our presidential candidates and certainly our winners are by and large political opportunists. They are people who see opportunities in the system and know how to turn the moment to their political advantage and to exploit the circumstance in such a way so that they are actually advancing along whatever issue or ideology or um, strategy they're putting forward. So all of that kind of then translated into this book, because what is fascinating to me and what was something that I found at the end of jockeying was really that the character of our presidents tended to have changed over time. In other words, the nature of these political opportunists looked a little bit different from the time that uh, we began in the 1790s to now um, in sort of 2020. And this is where I really started to dig into this idea of does kind of political experience matter? Um, And my answer at the end day in both jockeying and amateur hour is yes, experience matters and experience matters in a multitude of ways. So in, in your discussion of the two books that you've written in terms of understanding presidential ambition and the individuals who run for the office, as you say, um, those who sort of are opportunists, Um, and can see the kind of political dynamics in front of them, you note that the question has also arisen around political experience um, and the question of character. Can you outline a little bit about the connection between this political experience, and we've had a number of recent presidents who have had quite a lot less of that, um, and this broader question of character? Sure. So first, let me just say that um, experience matters kind of in different ways. And it matters how you describe experience or how you define it. So within jockeying, I did take a look at um, kind of the breadth of a politician's experience over the depth of their experience. And by that, I meant how many offices did they run for? Were they appointed to? Did they serve in? Um, even how many campaigns did they have? That's the breadth. And then the depth is really the number of years that they served in office. And when I looked at jockeying, I did find that um, this 
um, measure breadth over depth matters. And that when you actually look at our presidents, most of our presidents have been essentially about a 0.5. In other words, they've served um, in essentially um, about half as many offices or been appointed to or run for as years of service. So when we look to somebody like Thomas Jefferson, prior to his winning um, in 1800, he had, in fact, been appointed to run for, served in, um, or been elected to 18 different kinds of political offices. And he had actually served a total of 37 years. So when you look at that, that is a huge amount of time in the political world. He was not you know, sort of a gentleman farmer, right? Who just dallied in politics. He was a politician by every metric. Um, But when you move forward into the future, we're talking about people like um, George W. Bush, who had only run for, served in, or been elected to three different offices, and had served a total of six years prior to his winning the presidency. So these are really different kinds of people. And this is where my latest book, Amateur Hour, really gets to this notion of how much are you kind of a part of the political system? Um, Most of our recent presidents sort of proudly claim to be outsiders. And I think that has a materially sort of detrimental effect on what it means to be able to govern. Don't understand the system, appreciate the system, or even know the rules of the road. I'm not sure how we expect these people to be able to change the system in positive ways for the American people. And and this is not necessarily a new approach in terms of the 20th century. Um, Obviously, it is different than the the earlier part of our history, um, except we do have some sort of neophytes like people like Abraham Lincoln um, <clears throat> earlier on. But you know we have a lot of candidates, both Republicans and Democrats, but more often also Republicans running as outsiders um, at all levels uh, because. There, the expectation is that we need somebody who is not going to be corrupted by the system. Is that correct? Sure. But let's talk about this myth. Abraham Lincoln was not an outsider or an amateur. My goodness, he had actually been appointed to be a presidential elector twice in the 1840s. Um, And though he was not able to cast a ballot because his state of Illinois did not go for the Whigs, Um, It is true that he was actively engaged in politics and politicking from the time he was very young. He served in the state legislature. He served as a member of Congress. And he was deeply involved in sort of the stumping and the campaigning that went along um, for a good 20 years prior to him even becoming president. And this is where it is very different. Um, in terms of our sort of more recent presidents, their attachment to politics 
is much more tenuous. It is much more in a role of outsider critiquing the system rather than as either an attorney who is fighting sort of political battles or an insider working on behalf of their parties. And and so when we're talking about sort of this idea of the outsider versus the reality of the outsider, you are starting to get into this question of experience um, and understanding uh, how character also folds into that. And so the thrust of Amateur Hour is really this question of character um, for the people who occupy the Oval Office, um, which is a little bit different than what you're talking about in terms of having political experience. Uh, Can you tease out this idea of sort of political character um, or presidential character so that we can understand what you're talking about in terms of the distinctions between politicians over the course of 200 years? Yes. So let me just start by saying, first, we have to understand that in our early history, politicians were expected to um, kind of hide or cover their political ambition, right? They were expected to become virtuous individuals in and of themselves who then learned how to be leaders, So one of the things that's really fascinating when you start to dig into our early history is this idea of how a politician looked to shape their character. In other words, if they wanted to become a leader, they really began a process by which they investigated kind of who they were, what human nature was, and how it was they could become a sort of more successful leader to help, in fact, um, kind of be a better politician. Some level of what I would call consciousness around their actions and also a sense of humility and shame about kind of wanting the ambition or the elevation above their fellow man to be a leader. That's one piece. The second piece I want to say, which is most important in terms of this book, I argue that um, character is best understood not by doing a deep dive into these individual psychologies. I think we tread on kind of tenuous ground when we're trying to understand or ascertain motivations. I do think that we can know a lot about someone's character simply by analyzing the actions that they perform. In other words, people are what they do. And if you take a look at what they've done, you will understand how people will behave in the future. It's very likely that however they lead as a young person, they will continue to adopt or lean on those leadership skills in the future. And and you trace this all the way from Washington to Trump. Um, but Washington obviously had a particular role in shaping, as you say, this kind of um, approach to the office that um, kind of hid 
or um, dissembled the ambition, which sounds awfully like what Machiavelli talks about in, say, The Prince, um, and how that sort of initial shaping of the office also set it out um, on, on the sort of path that we've had with regard to thinking about the president and the presidency as both the pinnacle of the American system, but also something that, you know, Hamilton tells us in the Federalist Papers that we shouldn't be afraid of. Well, that's right. I mean, our earlier politicians um, really did, you know, they were steeped in these classical texts, right? They did read Machiavelli, they did read Aristotle, they did understand this notion that statesmanship was something to aspire toward and that to be a successful statesman, to be someone who is seen as an elevated shaper of the state, somebody who could have some nobility around this, that they had to become better leaders. And so there is this fascinating um, kind of analysis that each one is engaged with. They are, they are looking at how do I meet a moment with what is needed. This is where I really break leadership in my book into three different kinds of dimensions. I basically say, if we can think about most human beings, right, when they're faced with sort of a moment of survival or crisis, right, they have a fight, flight, or freeze mentality. We can similarly kind of take a look at leadership and understand that leaders have the option to choose courage, compassion, or curiosity as the leadership dimension by which they act. So in that sense, what I'm really saying is when a moment happens, when there is an event or a crisis or an an issue that is on the agenda, any leader can say to themselves, do I approach this with courage, meaning do I look to combat or engage in some risk or push back? Do I approach this with compassion, meaning do I um, sort of express empathy and approach this moment with a sense of feeling and understanding, but not necessarily doing? Or do I approach this decision with a sense of curiosity, asking questions about what's happening, perhaps setting up a commission to look into the subject? Do I instead look to experts rather than um, either of these other dimensions? And I think that when you look at how leaders lead, you can see that they tend to rely on one of these approaches more than another. And what did you find in terms of the more recent presidents who have less political experience compared to earlier presidents who have much deeper political experience? Well, so this is where we get to this notion of authenticity. And there is and seems to be a tremendous desire in our um, current politics, and I would say our contemporary society, sort of post-Vietnam um, and Watergate, for our politicians to be authentic, to always sort of be who they are. And that's 
really upsets um, the notion of what politicians should be. A good politician actually can draw upon any one of these approaches to meet a moment and to do so successfully. And I think that when you look back on Washington's presidency or Lincoln's presidency or FDR's presidency, you will see that they approached different moments differently. They drew on different aspects of their character to show that they could be either confrontational or sympathetic or um, kind of curious and discerning and thoughtful. What we see with our contemporary presidents is that they, they almost always have to be who they are. That in and of itself is a weakness because good leaders um, can't just approach every circumstance with the same character. What that really leads to is that old, you know, adage about, you know, if essentially, you know, you have a hammer, um, everything starts to look like a nail. And this is a little bit where our contemporary presidents are. They lack the, the skills of leaders to draw on different character dimensions and to approach different situations in different ways. And what is it that the American people want? Because as you say, this is, there's this notion of authenticity that has sort of grown over time since the 1960s and 1970s when we had these, you know, scandals and, and really disruptive periods um, in a contemporary setting and that Americans want, you know, um, the first response was Americans want this honesty and this cleanliness that Jimmy Carter brought to the office. Um, but, you know, again, we have since that time, this question of leaders who, you know, bring that authentic self, whatever it may be, but that doesn't leave them a lot of room to move around as statesmen or leaders. Is that correct? Well, that's right. I mean, I think what we really see is that the American people have told themselves a couple of things that they believe will make our politics better, but that these couple of things tend to reinforce some of the, the more negative trends that we have seen in politics. The first thing um, is what we talked about earlier, which is this idea of outsiders, that somehow Washington in and of itself is corrupt Therefore, we need outsiders uh, to make it more pure or more responsive to the people. Unfortunately, that is a strategy for ensuring that you will always have somebody who doesn't really know how to operate in Washington and will, in fact, create kind of more dysfunction than not, just by virtue of kind of a lack of knowledge. In other words, our presidents are having to get on-the-job training um, of how to kind of steer a tanker or um, fly a plane. And the American people are very upset, um, to continue the analogy, right, when the tanker runs into an iceberg or when the plane loses altitude. Um, you need experienced drivers to be able to do these kinds of things. So that's one. The other thing is is this notion of authenticity. We believe that if the person is who they are, 
we will never be betrayed. And that sense of trying to guard against betrayal has led us to accept what I would call kind of authentically awful characters on the basis that, well, authenticity is better than some form of, you know, packaging or spinning or, um, you know, acting. And I, I just would argue that Americans would probably be happier to have results rather than um, this authentic character. I just don't think it necessarily makes them feel better, but I think they believe that it is. And you said there was one more dimension to that. Um, so as I said, these couple of things have been really important, but when you look at sort of our, um, our contemporary presidents, right, they end up in this kind of one trick pony situation where they keep relying on what is authentically true to them, but may not be good for the situation ends up creating more and more frustration. I mean, we can track this just kind of quickly through all the presidents, right? We could say that Jim Carter was essentially very curious, but maybe not um, kind of courageous enough. We can then look at Ronald Reagan and say, maybe there were ways in which he was combative and courageous, but maybe wasn't so compassionate um, or curious. We can then look at Bill Clinton and we can say, geez, Clinton had a lot of curiosity and was deeply um, compassionate, but wasn't always as combative or he didn't stand up maybe as much as people wished. And we can fast forward, right, just to sort of President Trump. And we can say, look, he always only approached things from a sense of kind of strength and combativeness. He was not able to be compassionate. He was not able to ask good questions. And this was really part of why he became a one-term president. Um, and this is part of what my book does. It kind of teases out where were the leadership strengths and failings of each one of our contemporary presidents. And how did you um, assess this in the book? Because you use a variety of different methods to get at that sort of nuanced understanding of the presidents. Can you talk just a little bit about the different methods that you used in analyzing each individual administration and person? Sure. I mean, methodologically, this is really a book of case studies. Um, and I did dive deeply into each um, kind of president's background and their political experiences. And when we saw their actions with respect to leadership in earlier instances in their life. Um, and this is where methodological standpoint, my argument is who a president is prior to them becoming president is likely who they're going to be after they become president. So to understand how they're going to lead in their presidency, I think it's important to take a look at how they led in earlier positions in their life. So I analyze each one of the presidents on the basis of how do they look at 
um, or lead with courage, compassion, or curiosity? Are there aspects of their leadership that fit more into one dimension or another? Are there places where they learned how to do things that they maybe didn't know how to do? And then I take a look at their third year in office. Um, I am somebody who for quite some time has believed that a president's third year in office is actually the most important and pivotal year of their first term. I think too often our discipline takes a look at the first hundred days or the first year, or they talk about the midterm election. But the reality is, is that the third year is when a president look at what they accomplished in their first two years, how the midterm election went, and they can look forward to positioning their reelection campaign. So any president in his third year, they're either going to grow or not during that third year. And that third year is going to, in many ways, tell us whether the president is going to be in a position to run a successful re-election campaign or not, whether they have learned from their mistakes over their first two years, and whether they can pivot their leadership style or um, tactics in any um, kind of crisis or moment that is occurring at that time. And this is, I mean, again, you're right that a lot of time is spent on the beginning of an administration when the new president comes into office and there's a new cabinet and we're sort of going through the transition right now with regard to moving into the Biden administration. Um, But what did you find, particularly with regard to this post-Watergate period, with regard to president's third year? It's because we've also been in this long stretch of back-to-back-to-back two-term presidents which was the first time we'd done that since the 18, early 1800s. But unlike the early 1800s, we changed parties in between. Yeah, so this is another one of those interesting things. What I really found is that you see that um, Presidents Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton um, actually engaged in some levels of learning and engaged in some pivoting of their uh, character approaches toward leadership. Um, I think what is so interesting is that when you look at presidents um, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump, is that you see that none of them really pivoted or did anything different. They kept kind of doubling down on their base continued to be party leaders. And while George W. Bush and Barack Obama were reelected, it's also notable that in some ways um, their reelection campaigns didn't expand who they were talking to. Um, yes, George W. Bush uh, got more votes and certainly earned a, a greater percentage of the overall popular vote. When you look at who those voters were, they um, really worked to turn out more evangelicals than had turned out in 2000. And when you look at Barack Obama's reelection, um, it was the case that he, in fact, lost um, popular votes and lost electoral votes. So, in some ways, 
he um, had a reduced electoral coalition. He, of course, had a very um, kind of large election in 2008, so he could have afford to lose some people in 2012. But I don't think that we should look at either 2004 or or 2012 as really, truly kind of successful re-election campaigns, at least not in the way that we could look at 1984 or 1996. And and obviously Donald Trump didn't win re-election. So, uh, you know, the consistency of his approach and we could see this throughout most of his administration was pretty much, as you say, the person that Donald Trump was before he came into office was the person he certainly was in his third year in office. Um, for, from what I can tell, according to your methodological framework, is that correct? Yes. And I think that the other thing that's important is that we can see similar types of patterns to what happened with Jimmy Carter. I mean, in my concluding chapter, which I wrote before the November 2020 election, um, I actually finished that chapter in December of 2019. One of the things that I I really argue is that when you look at these third years in office, um, President Trump was not in a good position going into his fourth year, right? This is pre-pandemic. This is during the impeachment, but certainly not all had played out. And one of the things that I said is there's kind of this question about whether he's going to end up like Jimmy Carter or he's going to end up like Barack Obama. Um, But there was a case to be made, and I argue this, that he actually looked more to be in a similar place with Jimmy Carter than he did with Barack Obama because Barack Obama started at such a larger place um, in terms of having votes and vote share than did Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump's 2016 election was much more narrow and in some ways had more parallels to Jimmy Carter's. And um, in terms of the book itself, which is about the presidency and about, you know, different understandings of this office, um, a fascinating office. Um, there are a lot of new books it de- delving into the presidency, and your your excellent book is one of them. Um, but as a political scientist and as somebody who studies the presidency, what do you think is drawing all of us to consider this office beyond the fact that Donald Trump, who was kind of an unexpected um, president uh, beyond him. What is it about this office that we're really kind of puzzled by and intrigued by um, at the moment? Well, so what President Trump did was reveal how few guardrails actually exist in our institutions. Um, And this is where I would argue to our profession, we do have to think about agency. Um, as we are thinking about structure. I think many political scientists believed that some of these norms were just inviolable. And were inviolable, I would argue, because we were electing people who were already committed to these norms. So one of the things that is important to realize 
is that there was a reinforcing mechanism in our system. We were, um, you know, electing people who were attorneys who had been political science majors in college, who served in lower political office, who had been engaged in the partisan fray for years and sometimes decades before they arrived um, to the presidency. And what that meant is that even if they were as sort of, you know, Quranic suggests to us, seeking to upset whatever the status quo is and to kind of remake the politics of the presidency and the regimes that they were in. These were people who were looking to remake the system from the inside. They were already committed to what politics is and to what the American representative democratic republic was all about. They understood separation of powers. They cared about federalism. They knew what the rule of law meant. You cannot assume that if you elect a business person who's never held office, who was not interested in political science, law, or history as an undergraduate or graduate student, and did not care about these systems, and in fact spent an entire life looking to run a business that was a hierarchical family structure, that that person would be committed to the norms and guardrails of our American political system. And this is where I am just imploring our profession to think about what it means the more we kind of open the system up, not just to amateurs, but to people who essentially don't care about it. Because if they don't care about it and they spend their entire campaigns talking about how the system is rigged and how it is sort of bad and evil and corrupt, by virtue of their rhetoric, you are then electing somebody who is committed to taking it apart. I think should matter. I think you're right. I, I mean, I think that's um, a lot of where we are thinking not only about the presidency, but you know, like Julian Zelizer's new book about um, the House of Representatives and the speakership of Newt Gingrich. Um, and how that changed a lot of the dynamics in the house. And I think you're talking about some of the same issues around norms and guardrails and expectations with regard to how the system will work. Um, so let me, let me just add that on that note, um, this is where I sort of really draw the line. I want to a certain extent, amateurs in politics. I want people who have never been represented to be represented in politics. We need more women. We need more people of color. Um, We need people with a variety of perspectives. But the place for those people to start in politics is not the presidency. Um, That is my sort of biggest gripe is the idea that somebody could come from Hollywood or Wall Street and just run everything because, of course, their celebrity allows them to begin at the presidency. But that is such a sort of um, naive perspective on what it means. I mean, we would not 
you know, put somebody to be, you know, a CEO of a Fortune 50 company who had never had any experience in polit- in business. We would not, you know, take a passenger who's never flown a plane and put them in the pilot seat. We would not um, take somebody who has no experience and put them in the place of highest experience needed um, to, in fact, do well. And that's, you know, that's exactly what Hamilton talks about in the Federalist Papers, that it's going to be a steep learning curve. And this is, of course, his argument with regard to um, having sort of perpetual re-eligibility is once you've learned the office, then it's it's something that you should be able to continue to do, possibly. Um, but that it's it's a lot to just learn it. Yes. And it's also, and this is where the other trend, which I don't really discuss in my book, but I think it's very true. Our, our celebrities in an earlier time were actually our military generals, right? our heroes who had won great wars. So whether that was Washington or Jackson or you know, William Henry Harrison or Dwight D. Eisenhower, we had a lot of people who had very high level military service who were committed to democratic systems because they had fought on behalf of our country. Um, This is where kind of our modern amateurs are even more unusual when you look at them relative to our earlier ones, um, because our modern amateurs don't even have military service, right? Donald Trump was able to get out of serving in Vietnam. through, you know, his medical excuse of bone spurs. And we haven't had anyone in office um, since George H.W. Bush um, who had had that kind of military experience. So our amateurs are not just coming to us without kind of the political background. They're also not coming to us from a military background. And in terms of not having that military background, it also means that you haven't managed people who are doing something on behalf of the country, um, which I think is really important in terms of your argument that, you know, you can have a business person who's managed something, um, but it's not necessarily the same as managing people who are fighting and possibly giving their lives on behalf of the country, which is a different commitment to, as you note, um, fighting on behalf and willing to die on behalf of the the constitution. Yes. I mean, public service, I think matters. And I do think we have to get back to seeing politics as being public service. Yes. Our framers understood. And yes, we should understand that all politicians are motivated by personal self-interest and ambition. But there is nothing wrong with that ambition if it is aligned with our system. This is where, um, right, we talk about whether it's Federalist 51 or any of our other writings. You know, self-interest is not bad. I mean, TJ, um, uh, I'm sorry, H.W. Brands actually says in one of his books, Jackson, that he actually says, look, Um, You know, where self-interest kind of begins and public interest 
you know, begins is tough to note in any politician. We, we cannot really find that precise place right, where it's about their own personal benefit versus the public benefit. But he says, um, those who cannot master the coincidence have to leave the game to others and politics will essentially not be their venue. And I think that that's right. It's okay to have politicians who are self-interested. We just need to make sure that what they're doing is also in the public's interest when they're doing it. Yeah. I mean, and this was one of the points that George H.W. Bush made throughout his life with regard to why he was in public service, um, that it was important to be um, a, a servant of the country. Um, and if you had the ability to serve that you should, um, and, and, you know, he, he valued it in that regard. And I think that we don't talk about that as much. I know that the late John McCain had also been an advocate for more forms of public service available to American citizens. Yeah. And we're, I think we're so focused on the ambition, um, the celebrity, the branding, um, and the authenticity that we actually miss the reason for politics. Those personal um, reasons are certainly why somebody may engage, but they're not really why somebody would stay engaged or why they would keep doing this. Um, I mean, look at all of sort of, you know, the members right now, right? Because President Trump is so focused on his personal interest he seems to want to try to ruin all of the holidays of everybody else in politics by threatening to veto the Defense Authorization Act and to veto the you know stimulus bill and the coronavirus release bill and the um, obviously funding of government bill. Right? He's talking about rejecting all of those things, which then would force Congress to attempt veto overrides over the holidays. Um, so, it, you know, given the fact that you're now going to have to give up the holidays to serve a President Trump who never really is focused on serving the American people, um, I do think it's pretty extraordinary what our politicians are always being asked to do. And I think we just fail when we only see politics through this cynical prism. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people who are worthy of a continued cynical prism. I mean, I do think President Trump has shown that he is, in fact, worthy of being always viewed cynically. But not all of politics should be viewed that way. And, and I think that's one of the points that you make sort of weaving throughout the book is that, you know, there are understandings of politics and service um, and the presidency in particular that are important to think about that we perhaps have lost some of. So on that happy note, Laura, what are you working <laughs> on now? <laughs> so um, I'm actually right now doing a couple different things. Um, you and I are, in fact, having a conversation about um, how our culture, in particular, how uh, the cultural expression of fashion um, may, in fact, relate to political trends 
um, in terms of partisan preferences. Um, we'll see where that goes. It's going to be a really interesting conversation about culture. The other thing I'm working on is a much more historical um, uh, project, and I'm looking into right now sort of the background and the policy kind of moment that created the Louisiana Purchase. Um, agreed to um, put together a kind of short book proposal on um, Thomas Jefferson and the Louisiana Purchase that really looks at kind of that policy, that historical moment in time, and Jefferson's agency as president in being engaged in um, kind of that massive landmark decision, um, which more than doubled the size of the United States. As you might imagine, it is fraught with a lot of really um, messy politics. I mean, right, from, from racial um, issues related to slavery to obviously what it meant uh, to deal internationally with both France and before France got the Louisiana Purchase, Spain. So it's, it's a fascinating conversation. Um, this is part of a landmark decision series that Michael Nelson is putting together uh, for Kansas um, University Press. Cool. Well, I hope you'll talk to me about the Louisiana Purchase Project once it is in print. That sounds awesome. I most certainly will. And I can't thank you enough for having me on today. It was my pleasure. I've been joined by Laura Brown, who's the author of Amateur Hour, Presidential Character and the Question of Leadership. This is published, excuse me, published in 2020 by Rutledge Press. And I assume it's available at the Rutledge Press website. Is there any brick and mortar store that has a good online um, portal that you'd like to give a shout out to? Well, we always love politics and prose here in Washington, D.C., and I just want to wish them um, the happiest of holidays and hope that their orders are um, continuing strong. Great. Thanks so much for joining me today, Laura. Thank you.